get to open up our Bibles this morning again to the book of Mark, and today we will progress into chapter 2. We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. El Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 2, versículos 1 a 12. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, or first time in a while, we are about five weeks, well, not about five weeks, we are five weeks, into the gospel according to Mark. The author of this gospel, Mark, he has a burden, he has a purpose for writing. He wants to definitively define who is Jesus and what has he done. This is the single most important question. And you might think, well, yeah, of course that's what a gospel writer would want to accomplish. But it's even deeper than that. It's not just informing us that that's the most important question in order to be saved, but the most important question for any of life's circumstances. From the moment that you're saved until the rest of eternity, it changes everything. And that's a reality that becomes more and more uh, clear. It, it, it unfolds through the gospel of Mark. Now, today's passage, it's one of 13 consecutive stories. Jesus came initiating his ministry in chapter 1, verse 15, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand in me. Jesus is the embodiment of that kingdom. So that's how he started his ministry. And then the following 13 stories show just what kind of a kingdom is at hand. Just what kind of ministry Jesus is beginning. And then nestled within those 13 stories are five conflict scenes. The first of which we encounter today. Jesus encounters his very first opposition to his ministry. And in response to that opposition, oh boy, oh boy, do we ever learn who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So today, today's passage is special. What we learn about Jesus will have a dramatic effect on our lives. So, listen closely. Here we go. Let's together read Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was, report, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, 
Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of being reintroduced to Jesus this morning, that we have the joy of of seeing the identity of Jesus unfold even further before us. Lord, I pray that you would shake us out of our sleepiness, that you would shake us out of our assumptions and our presuppositions, that we would approach this story with fresh eyes, see Jesus in it, and see ourselves rightly in light of that, and thus be changed by your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I don't particularly like election season. I don't know if anybody really does. There, there's all kinds of furor with, with attack ads and, and, and all kinds of, the opposition just becomes more and more poignant. But <laughs> if there's one thing that, that I do kind of enjoy, it's listening to all the presidential candidates make big promises. They make big claims and big commitments. They say they're going to do this and that and the other. If you look at just some of, of the commitments and promises that have been made by recent presidents, take, for instance, not so recent, but George H.W. Bush famously in 1988 as he accepted his nomination by the Republican Party, he said, very famously, read my lips, no new taxes. But during his presidency, Congress pushed too hard in the other direction and certain taxes increased. Bill Clinton promised, I will preserve our nation's values for the generations that follow us. Oh boy, oh boy. Donald Trump claimed, I will make America great again. You hear these claims, you hear them on the surface, and you go, huh, all right, that'd be great, that'd be great. But if you're hearing each of these claims for the first time, what's your next question? It's essentially to say, okay, now prove it. Whatever side of the aisle you sit on, I'm not making a political statement, saying when a claim is made, it's got to be backed up. Anybody can make a big claim about anything. Big claims, they garner respect and they garner attention for a moment. <laughs> for a moment. 
but they've got to be backed up because anyone, anyone can claim anything. And listen, friends, in, in this passage and throughout his whole ministry, Jesus made the biggest claims that have ever been made, ever, by anyone. Claims that define the very world you live in. Claims that influence your eternity. Already, Jesus has claimed to have brought near the kingdom of God. What a, what a claim is that? The kingdom of God is brought near in him. The, the, John, John the Baptist claimed that Jesus would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit. If you, if you get the theological underpinnings of that claim, it's a huge claim. That, that, that's a, that's a history-transcending claim. The question, <laughs> the question is whether or not Jesus can back those up. And in Mark 2, Jesus makes the most astounding claim he's made yet. One that our, our literal existence hangs on. And this, this passage it very poignantly and very realistically says, yeah, but can Jesus back that up? And this morning, listen, all of humanity is split along the line of belief of whether or not Jesus can make good on his claims. And the point of Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is this. It is that Jesus is able to do what he came to do. That's it. That, that could even be the summary statement of Mark from one perspective. Jesus is able to do what he came to do. And again, all of humanity is split in two sides on whether or not that's true. So maybe even this morning, maybe you find yourself among that half who doubts that he really can. And if so, that, that, that is okay. Perhaps that's why God brought you here this morning to hear this message, to, to read Mark chapter 2. So this morning, we're going to take a look at, at three character profiles. We're going to separate this, this section into... into to three sections according to the, the major character profiles we see in this passage. Two of these character profiles represent these two halves of humanity. First, the faith-filled friends. Secondly, the doubting critics. And then finally, the third character profile, the powerful Jesus. And Mark's aim is that you see a reflection of yourself in one of the first two profiles. And then in the third, to see if Jesus is worth placing your faith in. Or if your doubts about him are confirmed. So let's get after it then. The first character profile is the faith-filled friends. And listen, aren't the most memorable moments of any story the, the unexpected interruptions? When you, when you go on a road trip, it's not the whole road trip that, that stands out in your mind. It's, it's the breakdown in the middle of the desert when your car overheated. 
that's memorable. Or, or when you finally get to your destination and, and you realize only then that you've forgotten your luggage. That's what you remember. But it's true. It's the unexpected interruptions that stick in your mind. And in this passage, Jesus had come, according to chapter 1, verse 38, to preach. That's why he had come. That was his primary priority, to preach the gospel, the good news, that the message of God's kingdom. But everybody he encountered was interested in his ability to heal. And crowds amassed from everywhere. So he has to actually pull away from time to time to go to the next town to ensure he has the opportunity to preach to as many as he can the good news of the gospel. And so we find him here in Capernaum. He's just come from Galilee. He's in a home, presumably Simon's mother-in-law, her home. And he's preaching, doing what he came to do. And, and, he, and he's about to become unexpectedly interrupted. But, but unlike most interruptions, th- this, would, this one is going to be memorable for all the right reasons. Because it'll highlight one of the most important aspects of Jesus' teaching. It doesn't prove to be an inconvenient interruption. It proves to be a God-ordained interruption to highlight the centrality of Jesus' teaching. So another crowd has amassed, and, and, and this is a crowd. The text says that, 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 that there was no room even at the door. This house was probably very small probably the size of a modern living room. So maybe 50 people in there standing shoulder to shoulder. But there are people coming out the door and trying to look in the window. I mean, it's this kind of scene where, you know when you do this in a crowd trying to see something? Everybody's doing this, trying to see Jesus, trying to to get in there to see and hear what Jesus is saying. It's just rows and rows deep with people inside and outside the house. And, and, and actually, the crowd is another character profile in this text. Crowds in Mark aren't, <laughs> they're not necessarily people who are filled with faith, though you would assume that. But they're really, they're, they're opportunists. They, they see Jesus as a tool to be used to get ahead or just an object of fascination. More often than not, they're a barrier to the people with genuine faith trying to get to Jesus. People like a paralytic lying on his pallet being brought by his four friends. This paralytic, we don't know much about him. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how, how big he was. We don't, know, we don't know how long he's been paralyzed. We don't know why he was paralyzed. One question some have asked is, was he paralyzed as a result of sin? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us, and that's intentional. All we know is that he cannot walk. Now, put yourself in their shoes. If, if I see a crowd like that and Jesus at the center, I'm going to look at that crowd and go, oh, man, all right, fellas, pack it up. We'll, we'll come back tomorrow. Maybe, maybe we'll have better luck getting to him tomorrow. <laughs> but it's just at this point that this story takes a dogleg right. Because what do they do? They go up on the roof. (laughs) 
Ancient roofs, they, they doubled as patios where residents could sit and cool off at the end of the day. There would be stairs leading along the side of the patio to, to gain access. And the roof was created by, by long, thick, longitudinal beams with, with smaller sticks laid across them perpendicularly. And then even smaller sticks and brush laid on top of them. And then up to maybe a foot of, of mud on top of that, which would then be rolled out and flattened. So you could actually go up there and, and, and lounge. So we're not talking about a straw roof that you could just sort of pull the rushes aside and look inside. They get it into their mind that they're going to make a hole in this roof and lower their friend right in front of Jesus. You even get the, the thought in your mind that maybe these, these guys ask their friend, well, let's just say his name is Bill. They look down at him and say, hey, Bill, should we, should we do this? <laughs> should we actually do this? And Bill says, well, I, yeah, I've, I've got to get to see Jesus. And so they go to work. Look in verse 4. In the Greek, it actually says they unroofed the roof. Think, think of this if you're on the inside. It sounds like you're, you're on the inside, and all of a sudden it sounds like somebody's shoveling above you. You hear, and you're sitting there going, we're in a meeting here. Jesus is teaching. We're, we're church. And somebody's doing a home improvement project up on the roof. But then, dirt and dust starts to come down on your shoulders and your head. But then after that, large chunks of roof start falling down. People are dodging to get out of the way. And then, and then, and then the roof opens with a huge hole, and there are four men standing up there. And they, they each attach a rope to each corner of this guy's pallet, and they slowly lower him down. They don't have like a pneumatic mechanism or anything. They're just like super dicey, lowering him down, hoping that he doesn't fall. I mean, you're supposed to, to, to get something here. This is not your ordinary situation. Mark wants us to, to sense the chaos, the drama in this, even the humor. I mean, think of the owner of this house. Whoever the owner was, this poor person, all these people have come into their house, trashed the house, eaten all their snacks, and now somebody has opened a hole in the roof. You're supposed to see that this is an uncommon situation. Shake up your minds. Imagine this scene. Read this not as just another Bible story. Put yourself in this situation. It was crazy. So in the midst of all this, verse 5, look down there. Jesus looks up. And what does he see? Jesus sees through the sweaty faces and the dirt and the branches of the dismantled roof. He sees through their nervous grins as they wait how he's going to react. And he sees the faith of these five men. He sees the faith of these men. We don't know what they believed. But we know that they believed that God is at work in this man called Jesus. 
They believed that, that who Jesus was and what he could do was sufficient for the greatest need that they were aware of. And then they acted on that faith. This is, this is such a beautiful picture of the kind of faith that captivates Jesus' attention. Scholar James Edwards says that faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. Pastor Jeff Perswell says, says it differently. He says of, of this faith, you're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, and not only that, you're convinced that he is the source of everything you need that matters. And you're so convinced that you act. Friend, do you find yourself here in this account? If so, let me ask you this. Are you prying open any roofs for your family, for your friends, for your coworkers, for your neighbors? Do you see the barriers to, to, to these people meeting Jesus and because of those barriers, just pack it up and say, ah, come back later. What would it look like for you to seek creative and, and maybe, maybe even uncomfortable and difficult solutions to those barriers so that your Santa Ana neighbors or the neighbor next door or your coworkers can have the opportunity to meet Jesus? We're well aware of the barriers. We see that crowd in the way. And, and if I'm honest, most of the time I go, ah, I'm going to pack it up. Maybe I'll try sometime when there isn't so much of a barrier. And that barrier really never goes away. Listen, are you so convinced that Jesus is God in the flesh that you will do anything to ensure that others will encounter the one who has come to seek and save the lost? That's the challenge to us in this. If Jesus is who he is, then we should be prying roofs open left and right. That's the kind of faith that this man and his four friends had. But now let's turn to the second character profile, which is the doubting critics. The doubting critics, if you're taking notes. This is the second point. Jesus looks down at the paralytic man in verse 5 and he says what nobody expects him to say. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Son. By addressing him as son, this, this conveys the, the, the tenderness of Jesus. But the words that follow left the scribes who were sitting there with their jaws on the floor. Now, Verse 6 says that the scribes were sitting in a standing room only crowd. They had the places of honor. They were sitting there. And, and that's not a surprise because they were, the scribes were the religious big guns of Israel. The, the Mosaic law was, was sort of the, the constitution of Israel. Okay, the, the, the Mosaic law, it dictated your, your social life, your 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 ceremonial life. It, it dictated how you related to God. It, it was sort of an all-encompassing constitution, if you will. 
And, and the scribes, they had the responsibility of, of interpreting and applying that law. So they weren't just religious figures that the broader public didn't really care about. No. They were the religious and political elites in the land. The fact that they were sitting there said something about the kind of attention that Jesus was drawing. And he's sitting there, and he says, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And in their hearts, they don't speak it aloud, in their hearts, look at verse 7, they go, what is this man saying? Who does he think he is? He is blaspheming. And to say he's blaspheming, that's no small thing. That is a capital offense. That was actually the, the offense that Jesus was brought up on and, and indicted on in Mark chapter 14, verse 64, before his crucifixion. It was the charge of blasphemy. And they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? See, the scribes, we can immediately start booing these guys, but they were not dumb. They were not dumb. They understood very well and correctly that Jesus was claiming the prerogatives of God himself. They understood. There's deep insight to this. They know that every offense is first and foremost against God. No one can forgive the moral guilt of sin. No one. No one but God. I can forgive you so that the barrier between the relationship of you and me is removed, but no one can remove the moral guilt of sin against God because all sin is against God. Think of it this way. Say, say I go up to Fernando and I kick him. And I kick him pretty hard and it really bruises his shin. And he may, he may even start crying. But then comes in Christopher, and Christopher goes, hey, Kyle, I forgive you. <laughs> Fernando's going, what? You can't do that. You have no right. You have no authority to forgive Kyle. Because the offense wasn't against you. See, the scribes know that the offense is against God alone. The moral guilt of sin is against God. And here is Jesus saying, Son, your sins against God are forgiven. Who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? Anyone who dares claim what Jesus just claimed dares to take the place of God. Jesus dared to tread upon the ground that only deity can tread upon. These guys, these guys asked the right questions, but what they failed to see was who Jesus actually was. They failed to understand who they are in light of who Jesus was. Again, Jeff Perswell says that they were present there not as humble, dependent sinners, Drawn to this man who spoke the words of God and the power of God, they were there as questioning critics, demanding that Jesus conform to their mold. You get the nuance there? They're standing in judgment over Jesus. They, they have 
They have a mold that they demand that Jesus must conform to, and they miss the fact that what they're accusing him of may actually be true. Unlike the faith-filled friends. See, these two groups are contrasted with one another. One is outside straining to get in to see Jesus. One is inside standing in judgment over Jesus. One is desperate, aware of their helplessness. The other is doubting, clueless of their helplessness. One is needy. The other is self-sufficient and self-righteous. And, and, and don't think of self-righteousness just as moral superiority over others, but, but, but as not needing the righteousness of God. You, you can be self-righteous without being snarky and arrogant toward others. You can be self-righteous by looking at God's standards and saying, I'm very happy with myself as I am. Thank you very much. Listen, if we're going to be honest with this book, ask yourself this question. Which group do I most identify with at this moment? Which group do I most identify with at this moment? If you're a Christian, that that can actually change from time to time as you sway from from doubt and self-righteousness to trust and faith. But in this moment, as you sit in this room, are you quite happy with yourself? Thank you very much. Or maybe maybe this just isn't the kind of thing that you think about, and so you're unaware of your helplessness and need. Or maybe you are coming this morning desperate needy, very aware of your sin, very aware of suffering and hurts and pain and confusion, very aware of your brokenness. Whichever you are, what happens next is for you, and what happens next is that we encounter the powerful Jesus. This is the third point. So we've, we've seen the faith-filled friends, we've seen the, the doubting critics, but now the powerful Jesus. See, for Jesus, sin is the fundamental need. For this paralyzed man, it is the fundamental need. For you, it is the fundamental need. For us all, it is the fundamental need. Now, let, let me ask you this. If, if you're a critic, if, if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure about Christianity yet, let, let me let me first just say, th- thanks for coming today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for spending your Sunday in this room with us. I, I know that it's, it's hard to come and sit in a room with a bunch of Christians when, when you're not a Christian. We respect you for that. But can I ask you something? How does this land on you? How does this land on you? This, this talk about sin is... is do you, do you see sin as, as a relic of the Victorian age that, that isn't really a real thing anymore? Is sin to you just something that's, that's, that's religious speak? The only people who, who are re- religious have this category of, of real moral wrong that, that they need to be accountable for. Listen, if, if you're surprised that Jesus offers forgiveness to this paralytic, then you wouldn't be the first. It catches everybody off guard. It's, it's like Jesus misses his cue. You can just see the four friends. 
Jesus makes his statement, and the four friends just say, look lower, Jesus. Thank you for your sentiments, but can't you see that our friend is broken? Can't you see that he can't walk? Listen to what one wise pastor says. He says, but Jesus didn't miss the point. He's the only one who perceived this man's greatest need. He recognized that this guy had a problem far more serious than paralysis. And it was that need that Jesus had come to meet. He recognized that this man was broken. And he was far more broken than anyone had realized. But can he actually meet this need? That's the question. His critics were sure that he couldn't. So being God, he heard their, <laughs> he heard their unvoiced opposition in their hearts, which itself demonstrates his, his divine prerogative. And what he says to their opposition, look at verse, verses 8 and 9 with me. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? What Jesus says is brilliant. I mean, it is brilliant. And what Jesus says is perfect. Notice that he says, which is easier to say. He doesn't say which is easier to do. Because like any political candidate, anyone can say anything. Anyone can claim forgiveness of sins. But there's no way here and now to know whether or not that claim is legit. There's no way. I, I, I could say it to you if you're sitting here. And you know that I'm not God. So you, you can know demonstrably that my claim is false, but Jesus was claiming the prerogatives of, prerogatives of God. But when you say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, it either happens or it doesn't. One commentator says, in terms of external proof, the easier action is to declare sins are forgiven. So by doing the more difficult thing, he demonstrates his authority to do both the difficult and the easy. Do you see what he's doing here? This is just brilliant. It's as if he says, you're right, only God can forgive sins. Touche. But if I heal this man, know this, I have the authority. In me, God is present. Through me flows the power of God. This is a watershed moment in the story and even in your life. And so Jesus looks at the man. Look at verses 10 and 11. <laughs> he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything 
like this. The man immediately gets up. Can you imagine that? His spine is restored. His nerve endings are recreated. His, his atrophied muscles miraculously grow in an instant. And he gets up. He even picks up this heavy pallet, demonstrating he, he can not only walk, but, but bear a load. And he carries his pallet, and he walks right outside the house like any normal, healthy person. Can you imagine can you imagine? All were amazed and gave glory to God, which is to say they recognized that indeed they had just witnessed the power of God. Now, this miracle is no act of compassion. It's no, it's no mere act of compassion. This miracle is exhibit A, that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. That's the point. It is exhibit A that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the power to do what he came to do. Amen. Jesus came with all the authority of God to meet the greatest need of man. Wow, this is good news. This is really, really good news. But before we close, let me ask a, a tender question. God wants to care for you this morning through this unexpected interruption. One commentator wisely points out that as believers, there are often two things vying for our attention. Salvation and suffering. Two things occupy the priority place of our main concern. Salvation and suffering. On one hand, a concern for our eternal spiritual state, our relationship with God. On the other hand, a concern for the temporal needs of life. And isn't that accurate? Those are the two things that occupy our concerns. One of them is a much greater concern than the other. Jesus had just made that clear. He made that very clear. Not just for the people who lived 2,000 years ago, but for all humanity for all time. And that's not to minimize. It's not to minimize your suffering. I have wept with some of you. I've spent long phone calls with some of you as we've worked through really difficult situations. We've attended funerals together. We've grieved the loss of loved ones. We've worked through difficult diagnoses. Many of these things I can't relate to directly. And I'm doing my best as a pastor, and Jeff is doing his best as a pastor to care for you, knowing that the suffering you're experiencing is real, and it hurts badly. But let me ask you this. Between salvation and suffering, which are you more aware of this morning? Which are you more aware of? Let me say it this way. What if Jesus had only said to the man, your sins are forgiven? Would you have been disappointed? I mean, be honest with yourself. Would you have felt like some injustice had been done? Like, come on, Jesus! You just had to say the word, and he would have been healed. Are you kidding me? Those words, your sins are forgiven, 
Nothing that Jesus could have said would have been more merciful, more powerful, more fundamental toward addressing this man's greatest need. And listen, if you are, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus, then his words toward the paralytic are true of you. And nothing more merciful, nothing more powerful, nothing more fundamental toward addressing your greatest need than those words. Which would you rather hear? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Each each of us here, each of us here has a rise up and walk category. Every one of us has a category where we're looking to God and we're saying, God, would you just take this away? Would you just fix this? Man, things would be so much better if I was just rid of this. A category which is a temporal need that that dominates our perspective and threatens to displace our perception of what our greatest need really is. What is your rise up and walk category? Listen, by God's grace, sometimes he does heal and restore and meet those temporal needs, but sometimes he doesn't. Or sometimes he takes way longer than you want him to. In those moments, do you find yourself saying, come on, you just have to say the word, Jesus. Come on. Or do you find yourself living daily in the wonder of the reality that the words, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven, is true of you? Oh, friends, God, God, would, God would gently adjust our perspective this morning to place salvation at the center of our priority of understanding what our greatest need is. Jesus came claiming to be able to deal with that, and he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt through his cross, ultimately, that he could do that, that he could do, that he has the power and the prerogative and the authority of God to do what he came to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for sending your Son. We know that in, our, in ourselves, we could not address our greatest need. We never have been able to and we never will. We thank you for sending one who can and who did and whose work is perfect and complete. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your compassion and your mercy. Lord, would we hear the tenderness and the voice that says, your sins are forgiven, knowing that if you would would resolve such an enormous need, you are certainly loving enough to care for every other need. We thank you, God. Would Would you rest our hearts in your love and your grace and never let us move on from there. In your name we pray. Amen.